Hello Movie Relicers and welcome to our first ever movie review podcast. Yes, we're usually the podcast that gets you ready for the movies or gives you information after the movie you've seen and we discuss the relics that you love. But this week we are talking about the film. We've seen the film, we're going to give you our thoughts. We're also looking at the relic for the week which is Spider-Man's Web Shooters and there's a special interview there for you. And in frame by frame, we're having a look at Spider-Man's resilience. So hold on to those webs, because here we go. This week, something special on Movie Relics. We are reviewing Spider-Man Far From Home. And for this special occasion, we need a special guest. He's a cartoonist, an illustrator, a writer, the founder of Siberian Productions set in the Blue Mountains. You might know him from comics like Darkest Night, uh, Billy the Vampire Slayer. Yes, it's my friend Hayden Fryer. Thanks for being here, man. Welcome. Hey, how you going? So, this week, Hayden and I went and saw Spider-Man Far From Home, which is the second installment in the Sony-Marvel partnership, the second time we've seen Tom Holland, and, you count it on your fingers, it is the eighth Spider-Man film we have seen in the cinemas. So, how did this film stack up? What did you think, Hayden? I enjoyed it, I guess you could say. It was fun. It was bouncy. It's... A nice coda to uh, the MCU up until Infinity War. Uh, Infinity, sorry, Endgame, I guess yeah. you could say. Uh, first reactions, I don't know. I kind of enjoyed it, but it still feels a little hollow. So what about yourself? What do you think? Uh, look, for me, it was so tough. Um, I, I definitely didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed Homecoming. Yep. I think there was a lot of really good things they did with Homecoming that they just didn't do with this one. Well, they didn't have Michael Keaton, for starters. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't mind Jake Gyllenhaal as a villain. I felt he was a strong villain and a good character. He certainly didn't have that evil kind of presence to him that Michael Keaton had. Like, when Michael Keaton switched it to villain, yeah, it, that was scene just, in, it was just yeah, phenomenal. That, but when, when Jake that scene, did... Was it that scene in the car where he turns around and threatens Peter? Oh, like, yeah. That was a just a... On a dime switch. Yeah. Uh, I think I think Gyllenhaal's version was more of a um, far more Baroque, far more showy, which probably fits more into the whole Mysterio character being, in, you know, an ex-Carney. Is an ex-Carney? Uh, yeah, I think he was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he has a... So obviously, you know, ex-Carney, he's a pretty much a big drama actor, failed actor, sorry. Yeah. Just Googled it. So obviously the theatrics and the uh, the Baroqueness and overtopness is probably a key part of that. So it's a good sort of contrast between the two characters. Yeah, I guess in I mean in the in the film he plays this kind of uh, tech. Uh, what is he? He's an ex employee of Tony Stark, and so he's oh. <laughs> spoilers. I think we just spoiled it. Yeah. Oh well, that's okay. <laughs> We're gonna. I think, that, I think that's the official spoiler. If, if you haven't right if you haven't listened to the spoiler warning before this, then then I've just ruined it. But yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, who is Quentin Beck in the film, is an ex employee of Tony Stark's. And so you you would think he'd be playing kind of this nerdy guy who's constantly building technology and he's being kind of demoralized by Tony Stark's character. But you know, I felt like he could have held his own with Tony Stark. He's essentially playing Max from um, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Max. He's pretty oh, much... Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the yeah. Jamie Foxx character. Yeah, Electro. Sorry. Yeah, but, but he, he's got more confidence. Yeah, it was the same setup, but they play it completely different angle-wise. Yes. So he's obviously using Stark's technology, which is nice. It's yeah. a nice tie into the main MCU, and it's keeping everything in sync as the more of the ground-level approach to the stories yeah. and more of the ramifications as well. So everything else that's going on in the larger story, you know, there's still bits and pieces floating around outside of that, and they're picking up on these threads to utilize the smaller films. Yeah. 
which, yeah. Well, I mean, I think we both have a, a very similar opinion of what we thought of Spider-Man. So let's let's talk about what were the things we liked first, and then we can go through the things where we, we weren't quite so happy with. I, I'm torn between liking it and hating it. The, uh, really? the whole, Wow. Well, it's the Disney Channel aspect of it. So mm. the character work for the kids, it was very Disney. I'm sure there's a, uh, there's a phrase for the channel. But, you know, those Saturday morning kids shows? Yeah. And the kids are all hyperactive, hyperbunchy, bouncing around the place. They brought a lot of that with them. And I think a lot of the cast probably came from those shows as well. Whereas, yeah. you know, you compare that to, say, the, the Sam Raimi films where all the actors, all the characters are playing in more of a 60s. It's a hyperactive, campier version, but there's more of an emotional grounding to it. The kids aren't just bouncing off the walls, quite literally. Yeah, you had a lot of... I, I felt in Spider-Man Homecoming, you had a lot of character development. Like, we really got to know Ned really well and his character. We got to know Mary Jane and then we even Flash to an extent. We got to kind of... Even though he was a one-note character in that, we still got to, to see him and see his function in the film... Yeah, and I guess with so many additional kids in this one, it, that was that was a bit tougher to see, and and a lot of that. Well, they still kind of hung around that. They still kind of hung around that core group, but they added Betty Brannion. Yeah, as well. but they. I I felt like they they kind of um, diluted their characters a little bit. I think it's probably just the conflict they had with the running time. Mm. So they go and spend so much time with the characters, and they'll they'll pretty much just getting wacky lines to throw around in the set pieces. Yeah. I, I will say one of the, the high points for, the, for this film was, I think, how they handled the end of Tony Stark and how they still included Happy into it. I felt yeah. like I really could see the journey that Spider-Man was going on and, and the emotional toll that uh, Iron Man being gone and then everybody looking to him because he was the, the, the last standing hero and then having Happy to lean on, not as a, an additional father figure, but as someone who had gone through that grief and, as a mentor? And loved, uh, as, I wouldn't have called him a, a mentor in this one. I would have called him as I mean, just someone a, sharing the grief. I mean, Tony's essentially Uncle Ben 2.0, so... <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that that's my part to talk about in the problem section, but let's, let's focus on the positive <laughs> at the moment. Yep. <laughs> so what was the positive for you, then? Oh, I, I think I think the villain was really good. I really, oh, I really liked the Mysterios... Uh, illusions I thought yep. you know they'd stepped up their level in terms of the the realism and the effects from Doctor Strange yep. and it was just it came out of nowhere and was just so good like there were some scenes where you just like like you didn't know whether the illusion had ended or not and then suddenly it would snap back yeah and, there's um, a level of surreality to it yeah oh. and and how Quinted our um, Mysterio just kind of walked him in front of the the train sure. line and I was that just shocked me, and I thought that was phenomenal. Um, what else did I really like? So even the effects, like they were in that sort of surreality to it. So yes. it was felt almost stylish in the way it was executed, and sort of bouncing between those, you know, the shadow prisms, the smoke areas. It really did call back on both the comics, I guess, and even the cartoon series. Yeah, but it was, it was good that they revamped his costume, though. Like, if they had left that to, like, the comics or the or the, the cartoons, it would have just been so hokey. Oh, it's great they wanted the fishbowl. <laughs> well, it's good that they included the fishbowl, but they shrunk it down a little bit. They put clouds and that inside of it, and they, they made it very much like Spider-Man's suit. So when it needed to disappear, it disappeared. He didn't have to, like, clonk it off his head like a, <laughs> it that was, was a real bowl. That was like the one thing I actually appreciated on that was the practicality of the uh, the bowl itself. Mm. So during that fight scene near the end there, where he's got, where he's pretty much working remotely, he's the oh, bowl yes. essentially is the uh, it's a headgear. Yeah, a heads up display up on the bowl itself. So it's a good practical design for it. And I think because of the transition between once he was at the beginning he was in the suit and then at the end he was using the bowl remotely and you actually got to see him do that. You yeah. don't need to watch it again to kind of see what's going on and i rec i reckon they would have hidden him somewhere like yep. in that first scene you'll you'll look through a window and you'll spot him there well even the scene where he's talking to peter on the uh, rooftop where he just sort of floats up and sits down next to him yeah i think that was one thing i realized he doesn't i don't think he actually interacts with anyone yeah okay that might, that might be the key thing to sort of look out for when you're re-watching it just to see if there is actually any practical interaction on set so if he's Walk around shaking hands with someone, he's probably physically there, but if he's not touching anyone, then it might be a hologram. 
Wow. Okay. I, I hadn't thought of that, but that yeah, I'm gonna have to see it again and, and have a look at that. Yeah, it'd be something to, sort of certainly something to keep an eye out for in a rewatch. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. You've got me thinking now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what were some of the other things you liked? Ooh. Just shows how cynical we are, isn't it? <laughs> that, that in an instant we could list off the negatives, but the positives, oh, it's it's tough. The girl playing MJ. Yep. I think she did. She was good. She was fun. Yep. She had the, the wittiness to it, the dryness as well. Like she wasn't obviously the supermodel version, and obviously it's not the true, you know, Mary Jane. Yep. So I think what was the actual name of the character? Uh, oh, I don't. I can't remember. I know we found out in Homecoming, but I don't think it got mentioned in this one. Yeah, was it Maria or something? Something like that. I, I want to say Megan, but I, I feel like it was a more uh, uh, cultural name or an ethnic name. Not yeah. entirely sure. I'm going to have to look Should that Google up. It. <laughs> I think Marissa Tormey did a really good job as Aunt May. Yep. She didn't get much to do, though. But she like got it's... more than last time. Michelle. She was playing Michelle. Michelle. Okay, I was completely wrong with the cultural aspect. Yeah. Is it Zendaya? Zendaya? I'm yep. probably going to pronounce that wrong, so if anyone's actually listening to this, feel free to uh, send me hate mail <laughs> <laughs> with the correct pronunciation. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Okay, so should we dive into the, the things that we we were not particularly happy with? Yeah, which we kind of sort of skimmed on already, I guess. So the probably the kids, the way it was played, it's probably... I mean, it's a new generation of watchers and followers. Yeah. Um, so obviously they're going to appeal to a new generation of kids growing up, and that's what they're sort of raised on. It's going to, it's very popish in that regard. Yeah. Maybe even populist is probably the term for it. So they're obviously they're chasing a trend. And the other thing as well is that they're, I think, using the kids as a basis for it and building it off the MCU. They've got their hands tied uh, when it comes to the actual storytelling. Like if you look at the previous ones, there's more of an emotional basis to it, and Peter himself has more of a, a singular drive through it. Yeah. When you're looking at these ones, though, it's all external forces messing around with him, and he's, you know, his moment of darkness. He's sitting on a fucking, sorry, swearing, but he's sitting on a, uh, a jetliner with a whole bunch of toys to play with, and that's his, you know, moment of darkness. He's, you know, the dark hour of the soul, uh, dark tea time of the soul. Sorry. Yeah. Whereas you go back to, say, you know, Spider-Man 2 with the Raimi films and he's literally sitting on the side of the road with, you know, cars driving past, splashing water at him. You know, you feel that sort of level of hopelessness. Whereas the other one, it feels just more of a, a surface texture. Yeah, even at his lowest moment, he still has a lot of tools that he can lean on and a lot of people, like... When yeah. He, when he woke up in that jail cell, I mean, he called home for help. Yeah. I just thought, oh, what sort of a crappy hero are you? He's just <laughs> calling... Mom, I failed. Help me. Wait, well, he's pretty much calling Dad 3.0 for a lift home. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it just, he he hasn't had, there's there's one thing that I've heard thrown around a little bit with Spider-Man is that this, this whole line of with great power comes great responsibility, that it's kind of yeah. lost its its um power, its presence in the films. And so these filmmakers are desperately trying to avoid having that line in there. Well, it hasn't actually been in there since no. Raimi's films. No, I think no. it's the last time we ever heard it actually on screen. Yeah. Like, Amazing had Uncle Ben's talk, which is skirting around actually saying it. I think Peter pretty much reciprocated to Tony in Homecoming, but yeah. the lines themselves have never actually been said from memory. But I guess, I guess, like, okay, they're focused on not saying that line, and that's fine. They're allowed to have that. Yeah. That, that's their creative power to do that but i think they've forgotten that with that line comes along that moment where peter's stuck like everything is against him he somehow can't get to where he needs to be he needs to help the people who he loves and in that moment it's that saying and that connection he has to uncle ben that allows him to push through an immovable object that's what makes yeah. spider-man so great and i don't think we've really had that moment we definitely haven't had it with tom holland spider-man we might have had it with Tobey Maguire's. Like not, it hadn't been done perfectly, but we had something close. And we that's didn't have it with point. Andrew Garfield either. And I think that's what's missing with Spider-Man. We just haven't had that, that well, no, thing had, that shows us he can push Ra through anything. Each of Raimi's films had that moment, and it was pretty heavy. Even the third one, that was a little bit on the soul, where he grabs the suit back out before he goes to the final confrontation. That's it there, where he's sitting, where he's sitting listening to the radio scanner. Yeah. 
it's you know thunder's lightning is cracking he sees the tv go off with mary jane caught and then he's you know grabs a suit and goes to see harry for help and then in the second one where they're what is it they're in the cafe yeah when doc Ock attacks them to go still mary jane and try and you know lose spider-man out and he pulls himself up out of the rubble literally crunches his fist throws his glasses down or takes his glasses off and then shuts cuts them in the suit pulling the suit out again and then you obviously got the first film where you know the goblins got him down and out, and he manages to get back up and keep fighting. I think, Whereas, yeah, I'm I'm looking for that that scene that's that's somehow in recognition of the comic book scene where he's trapped underneath that huge machinery, yeah. water pouring on him, and he knows he has to get up because Doc Ock's going to kill Aunt May. Yeah, like, we need a scene like that where he, he not Which just they, they kind of yeah. what the, there's a little bit of that in Homecoming, wasn't it? At the end of the with the um. Uh, when the plane comes down? Not really. Not not where one of his loved ones was threatened. It was more like he needed to get up or he would get hurt. Yeah. Like, it's self-preservation at this point. Yeah, I guess that's true. So there was no sort of external force on it. Yeah. And and, and I guess that, that leads me into my, my, my main problem with this film, is that Peter Parker, I, I, I was okay with him in Homecoming... I thought he was okay, and I understood why they did him that way. Yep. But in this one, he's dopey Peter Parker. Like, <laughs> like Peter Parker is this really nerdy kid. He's socially awkward, but he's super smart. Like, he's yeah. science, he's able to work things out. And then when he's Spider-Man, he's supposed to have all of these kind of sarcastic quips that kind of are a defense mechanism for how scared he is on the inside. But also, yep. it becomes like a way for him to unnerve his villains, and he's yep. not this—he's not that in the film. Like he makes so many dopey mistakes, he makes so many things that they actually play as dopey mistakes. Like it's not just me saying that was a dumb thing; he actually recognised that it was a dopey mistake. And I don't like that—that that type of hero. Like that's not who he should be. Are you talking about the uh, the Edith glasses handing over? Well, I mean that—that that I could understand. <clears throat> To, to a point, but then the whole thing with the glasses and the drone. Yep. Like, that was just dopey, and then... Uh, well, they, had the same, they had the same kind of thing with the kill switch in the in Homecoming. Uh, oh, yes, yep. Yeah, so, yeah. it's mean, I mean, it's an established thing, but it's the same kind of humour and jokes that's probably more popular now, and in line with the actual series. I think that's disappointing. I, I think... Because yeah. you, I mean, you're a fan of how they played him in Civil War, aren't you, as well? Yeah, I'm okay with that sort of Spider-Man that's constantly doing pop culture references and things like that, and he's a bit out of his element, but not dopey. Like, he just (laughs) felt so dopey in this one, and and the way he was swinging around, he was just reacting to things instead of thinking about it with a scientific mind, like he does in the comics. And I'm a massive fan of the comics, both when he's a teenager in certain comic books and then him as an adult. And I've seen the different ways that this plays out. And very rarely is he a reacting character. He thinks about what he's going to do. He thinks of different ways to solve things. And then when he is reacting, it's that drive of the loved ones and the need to protect people, not just protecting himself. And making the right choice every time. Yes. I think that was the thing that frustrated me as well when he's fighting the elementals. It's obviously, you know, he's fighting the water elemental and then the, uh, the fire elemental with the molten lava. But there's no counterplay for an opposing force. Yeah. Where, say, if you got, like, the... I think it was a 90s cartoon series of Hydro Man. Like, he makes a point of freezing him to stop him. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, in the case of Water Man, he'll literally fire a uh, water main at him, which they kind of do in this one, but there's no tactical advantage to it. It's just something that quickly happens on screen, and then it's never spoken of again. These versions were just so big, it was like, what could Spider-Man do against them? Yeah. Well, that was it, though, is it? I mean, creatively, as a creative storytelling process, you'd think they would have something there to lean onto that leans into the character. Yeah. As opposed to just having it so Quentin Beck does everything, which is part of the movie, though, I guess, in the case of they're setting him up as the solver, because obviously it's his fight, and he's, you know, I guess he's playing video feed, which is probably a questionable thing as well when it comes to Spider-Man reacting to it. Because they show the... uh, was it later on when they show the new creature at the end for the finale? Ah, uh, yeah, the what was it the storm sort of one? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think they're also joined up together. 
the yeah. um, they show that scene in the warehouse where they're pretty much fine tuning the performance. So is it a case of that the performance that was happening earlier? There was no integration. It was kind of a leap of logic there that they didn't really question. Oh, yep, yep. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I had I had a tangent there. I was going on, but essentially. <laughs> I don't know if it was a case of the storyteller of the scriptwriters themselves skimming over it because they wanted to give focus to Beck, or if it was a case of they just completely dropped that aspect of Spider-Man or of Peter Parker, that he would have a creative problem or a creative way of solving that issue of what the elements of what Anton elements were and then defeating him. Yeah, so, and I mean that plays into what we said earlier about like Spider-Man kind of being mothered in this one. He he never really stood on his own. As they give him that fire suit, like. At no point did he create his own technology. Yeah. Well, even the web shooters, everything's been handed to him. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's kind of an arc they had in the comics as well, like post-Civil War, when he moved into, was it Avengers Tower? Yes. And he was essentially working for Stark, and Stark was gearing him up with all the equipment, and then he switched sides to Cap's tie, and they end up switching back across to the bare bones. Ah, but the interesting thing about that story is, even though Tony Stark gave him all the armor in the comic books, he still uh, like worked on it himself. So he was able to override Tony Stark's uh, commands and overrides, which he had put in his safeguards. And so yeah. it still showed that he was a, he was just as much a futurist as Tony was. He was just as smart and intelligent as Tony was, but if he's not got, more. Yeah, but he's preoccupied with other things, essentially. Yeah. I mean, does this movie kind of show a bit about the generation it's, it's aiming towards in that Peter has everything he needs, even when when the shit hits the fan, he's still got everything he needs to get back up. You could. So you're saying it's more of a babying situation. I don't know. Is it is it para is it trying to do a parallel between the 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 new viewers it's trying to attract and that? Hey, look, guys, you have everything you need, just like Peter does. You're could never be. down and out. I mean, it's a cynical, it's a cynical view of it, but it certainly it does read that way, doesn't it? It does a little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I probably say it's probably more to do with the way they've integrated with the main MCU, and they've picked up those threads to sort of tie them into it more seamlessly. Yeah. And then keep it segregated as well, so that you know, I don't know what the deal is with the license with the Sony and Marvel crossover. And was it? I don't know how many films it was even agreed to originally. Was it five films or six films? Yeah, so originally it was five films. So at the moment we've done all five. So uh, the five include Civil War, Homecoming, Infinity War, Endgame, and then Far From Home. But yep. about a year ago, Tom, Tom Holland, in his notorious way, got on an interview show and admitted that there was an extra film that they, they had contracted him to a trilogy for, for Spider-Man. Yep. And so there is going to be a third one. And so somehow they renegotiated the deal. But, oh, my God, the deal with Sony and Marvel, it's it's so in Sony's favor. Like, Marvel has the rights to be able to share the way they produce the film. So, like, they have the creative control of the film. They, yep. they do everything. They hire their own people, their crew, everything like that. Um, and Sony gets all the profits from it. Marvel gets no money from the profits of this film in terms of ticket sales, DVDs. But where Marvel gets their money back is through merchandising. So they can sell as many toys as they want, backpacks, things like that. All that money goes to Marvel. Which means they five different suits then. (laughs) Oh, exactly, yeah. And then all the additional money, like when when he's in another film like um, uh, uh, Civil War or Endgame, where he's in a Marvel film, they have complete control then and... Yeah, Sony barely gets anything. Yep. But yeah, it's an it's an interesting deal, and I mean, Sony got the rights to Spider Man in the late nineties when when Marvel Comics was going belly up, and I bet they they're happy they did then. Who had the rights in the nineties for James Cameron's version? Was that it was Canon Films, wasn't it? From memory, uh, I think they were sold off. Well, they were licensed off. Yeah, I think they were licensed off in the late eighties. Are you talking about Spider-Man still or the other Marvel characters? No, Spider-Man. Because there was a James Cameron. There's actually two or three script revisions from James Cameron um, for a film version he was going to do in the early 90s with Leo DiCaprio, I think, from memory. As far as I know, Spider-Man was always in Marvel's... Marvel's um, Marvel always had the licensing rights to them. And it, it wasn't until the late 90s. Like they were, He was one of the very last characters they, they um, sold off. 
Yeah, it must be in a sub license then, because there's a, there's definitely scripts around for James Cameron's version. There's storyboards as well. Okay. Because um, okay. the original version of the script had him against Electro, and then the second revision I think was with Doc Ock. Mm, uh, okay. Yeah. And, and there's a whole sort of sub myth on that where the sets they had built for Spider-Man end up becoming used on Cyborg, I think, for memory, or Masters of the Universe. Uh, Masters of the Universe, the sequel for that. So they pretty much harvested what they had they had built at the time. And then use them for Cyborg. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, Sony, Sony still has the rights to the whole uh, gallery of villains that goes with Spider-Man, and you know we've seen the success they had with Venom, and we're yep. we're gonna get a Venom two. Um, Tom Hardy has been um, said he's signed on for that next film. Why? So that'll. Uh, I I didn't mind Venom, and I like the idea of Carnage. I don't think they've got the right actor for Cletus Cassidy as Carnage, but that's that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> but we've got Morbius coming, the Living Vampire, played by Jared Leto. I'm, I'm so. curious to see how that one plays out because mm. Morbius is a, I mean, it's a character you can easily easily pop out of the actual story, like the Spider-Man myth. Yes. On that separate. Actually, would have been because I think he was meant to be a villain in Blade Two or Three. Something like that, but that yeah. Might, Morbius might be the way that they bring Blade into the um, into the MCU universe. Yeah, there was. I remember seeing some talk about uh, was it Wesley Snipes trying to reprise the role again? Yeah. So. Yeah. I and don't, they, I don't I mean, think I they'll was, use him. They'll use someone younger, surely. Well, I mean, given the end of this film and the uh, the spoiler coming out, it's at the very end. It's possible they could bring another actor over. Yeah. I mean, certainly set a precedent for it now. So. Definitely. Yeah. So, so we've talked about the good and the bad. Where does this Spider-Man rate for you out of the out of like all the Spider-Man films? So the Tobey Maguire trilogy, the Andrew Garfield double, and then now this Tom Holland double. I can't rate them, to be honest. They're all they're all different creatures. Yeah. Even the uh, the amazing ones. I mean, they're a mess, but the sort of through line there that works with regard to Garfield and Emma Stone, and then these ones they essentially work as packages i guess you could say yeah and i mean if i was going to rate them all i'd say the raimi ones obviously my favorites because i grew up with them it hits that 60 aesthetic it, everything that's in there or everything that's true to the mythos of spider-man is in it apart from the wisecracking that's probably isn't as much as it should have been it, even the third one you you you're including oh, the third one oh in that? yeah i will defend the hell out of the third one <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'm going to give you one of. We're, we're going to put this to the test. I'm going to give you one of the what one of the most the, the points that they say is the worst things about these film, and you're going to have to explain it and say why this film is still good. Okay. Okay. Right. Tobey Maguire's gothic dancing. It is fucking fantastic, and it works <laughs> in character. It's a perfect character piece. Like, he's a nerd from the '60s. He's going to be, he's going to be looking at swinging jazz as the cool thing to be happening. The suit itself is pretty much releasing his inhibitions and so it's his inhibition self he's not an angry <laughs> self he's not a troublesome self yeah but he's looking to be cool confident and that sort of fits with that motif so i can see that version of parker doing that so, so if you had to remake this film you would include that scene the like dancing him. and him walking down the street pointing at people and that scene is amazing <laughs> I don't know whether you're serious or not. I can't tell. I'm dead serious. That scene is amazing. It, it's, it is, it's. I think the problem is though, it's a tangible contrast to what you'd expect. And looking, because the rest of the film's kind of fractured when it comes down to the narrative. Yeah. Like the Sandman stuff feels separate to the Eddie Brock Venom stuff, and it feels like they've got two scripts that they end up just mashing together. And there's whole sections where the film literally just goes off on a tangent, like the scene with the, uh, the. The crane, where they rescue Gwen Stacy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the crane's just spinning around, smashing buildings and stuff, and Peter literally just grabs Gwen and just whoops her down to the ground, and then mm. the movie doesn't even question it again after that. Well, that it is it is actually two stories combined together, because San Raimi, the director, wanted to do Sandman and Green Goblin to finish Harry Osborn's story. That was his pitch. Yeah. And then the, the studios wanted an extra film to make the third one bigger and better, and they just kept on him about this Venom idea. And yeah, he didn't which... know anything about Venom. He, Venom wasn't a character that was familiar to him, so he added Venom in because they, they put that much pressure on him. And so the whole Gwen Stacy story is only there because of Eddie Brock. And so it has no substance to it. Well, the Eddie Brock stuff has a good chunk of substance. It's essentially Peter with 
without the support and balance in his life. Mm. So Eddie doesn't have Aunt May. Eddie doesn't have everyone else that's there to sort of prop him back up and then give him that sort of guidance. And when he gets a suit, the first thing he does, he just creates havoc. Like, yeah. he's a great contrast for Parker. And it's the way they actually did that as Venom. Like, it's a smart way of doing it, especially in the case of a bottle film like that and trying to get in, explain it, show it off, and then have a catalyst. See, so, I'm such a lover of the comic books that I, I wonder, if I if I was not a fan of the comics, would I have disliked Venom as much as I did? Because I think if you, the thing is, though, like if you go back to the Venom in the 90s, he's muscle-bound anti-Spider-Man, yes. literally. He's always been this big, buff, kind of almost like a, a, a bouncer at a bar sort of thing, and that's why he was so parallel to Peter, because Peter was always skinny and lean and and yeah. quiet spoken but but Topher Grace great actor but but yeah. he wasn't That's right for that part they they took the they took the physicality out but then they had the they added the actual character work into it yeah where if you go back to the 90s comics the character work isn't quite there um the only thing, yeah the only thing i don't like about 3 is probably uh the amnesia aspect uh where harry loses his memory and he's essentially reset until it you know gets hit back again and I think that whole section there was probably a waste, but they had to they had to get him into a position where he could help out Peter at the end, just to give his his character a full circle. Yeah, which it, probably, it would which have been awesome. better if he was kind of quietly plotting in the background, and we knew what he was doing, but Peter didn't until it was revealed. Yeah, well, that's the other thing as well, though. If you look at those three films, Harry has an arc all the way across it, and mm. they're essentially they're essentially his films. If you that's actually true. look at where it carries over between all three of them. It's him coming to terms with his best friend, being the guy he thought killed his father, come to accept that, and then helping him out in his time of need. Yeah. Well, that's that's what it is in the comics. Yeah. So. And then that's something that you don't really have in the other two. So when Harry pops back up in Amazing Spider-Man, he's, yeah, the entire movie is literally him just doing the full circle back towards the Goblin. Yes. And then there's no carryover in Homecoming or Far From Home that has that, like, Ned doesn't. There, there's no setup with Ned, and the, probably the closest thing is maybe Flash at the end of Far From Home, where uh, the Butler picks him up. So I've got a feeling they yeah. might be just merging characters there and just merging him with the Harry, Harry's backstory. Well, the hard thing with the Amazing Spider-Man double is that with the trilogy, if they had done the third one, I feel like they would have um, done more on on um, Peter's parents, and that would have been the the kind of cycle. I think no, that was a stupid idea. And because it, it it dehumanizes yeah. Peter, it creates it puts him on outside that level of the everyday man that gets bitten by a spider. I think it like, devalues who Uncle Ben was. Like we we've only in yeah. the very first trilogy have we really actually had, pretty... had how important Uncle Ben was for who Peter is. And Amazing Spider-Man with the parents thing took it away from that. Yeah, actually, it's probably the Eureka moment. It's probably the one. It's probably the issue that. They've probably got with the MCU. Yeah. Peter isn't an everyman hero. Like, he isn't the one person who's been downtrodden, always has Parker luck, essentially. Actually, that's probably what's missing. The Parker luck. Yeah. And the guilt. But, yeah. It's that sort of grounding, that sort of worker level that Steve DeKito's, you know, core of the character is kind of missing. Yeah. Like, oh, they haven't team up with Tony straight away. It elevates him off that, puts him on the playing field of every of all the other characters, and they keep referring to the fact he's not used to it, but they don't actually do anything dramatically with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the fact that you said, like when we were talking about Far From Home, that Peter was always looking for an, another pseudo father character or another pseudo, like that male lead, it just yeah. shows that they've never touched on Uncle Ben and. If the if Uncle Ben is in this whole new universe, how crap was he that that Peter's just looking for anybody to <laughs> fill that void? Like Uncle Ben's dead. Oh, Tony, you're my new dad. Oh, Tony's dead. Jake Gyllenhaal, you're my new dad. Oh, but you're bad. Happy, you're my new dad. Like it just I mean, takes is, takes though, away he's... how important Ben uh, Uncle Ben was to him. Well, the other thing as well, though, he's still technically sixteen in these films. So he hasn't. He's still that late age or that sort of mid teenager years where he's trying to find himself. He still has that missing that mentor, whereas all the other films sort of had that for the start and then quickly jumped to him in college, where he's pretty much got his grounding, he's got his footing, and he's got his place in in the world. 
Yeah, so that's very true, yeah. Understand why they're probably doing that. And then obviously it gives them a support group that they've got to work with for the character. But yeah, I, I think having him having all the accessibility and the support there and then not having that grounded character base that's true to the character mm-hmm. is probably what's going wrong. Yeah. And probably why the films feel like they're something's quite off about it. Yeah, it's it's not as in depth as it could be. It's it's kind of like a surface look at Spider Man. Yeah, I mean, which is okay. Obviously, you're gonna have you know your Saturday afternoon movie that you want to throw on and just kick back and enjoy, and they're perfect for that. Yeah. Like, they're not awards in twenty years time. We'll have the retrospectives that you know the nineteen eighty nine Batman just had. Was it last week? Yes. We have some think yeah. pieces on you know how much it pretty much changed pop culture, the whole media marketing landscape. With merchandising tie-in, the the reapproaching of the superheroes after the '60s, like you're not gonna, I don't think you're gonna get that with these films. You will with Iron Man, everything up until probably Endgame. Mm-hmm. But I think the Spider-Man tie-ins are probably just gonna be a, a footnote off to the side in the long term. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you think, um, do you think superhero fatigue comes into the way we react to this movie at all? Like we've we've just come off Endgame, which is you know, one of the biggest superhero films ever. I was thinking about what's actually, I mean, there's movies slated after this, but then we haven't got anything until 2021. Uh, yeah, something like that. Well, that, they haven't announced uh, Phase 4 yet. We've only got Whisperings. We know we're getting a Scarlet Wid- uh, uh, Black Widow there's Shang, solo. There's Shang-Chi, Black, Willow, uh, Black Widow. Well, nothing's been confirmed except for Black Widow. Shang-Chi was, because they're filming that in Sydney. I think. Oh, I'm pretty sure I'm... Fox Studios picked up the rights for uh, the production team. Oh, okay. But there's also um, Guardians 3, which is going to pop in after Suicide Squad 2. Yeah, and then um, Doctor Strange 2 and Black Panther 2. Yeah, so I think we've, we've had a good solid 10 years of films. Or it's almost two to three Marvel films a year for 10 years straight. So I think we're probably at the tail end of giving a shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need a breather. Yeah, I mean, even with DC, so trying to shuffle things out with Wonder Woman 2 and that, we, you're sort of looking at it, and even Westerns died out after 20, 30 years. So yeah. these films aren't going to last too much longer until they become a, a revisionist thought in about 5, 10 years' time. Yeah, I mean, that's that's been one of the big things with Phase 3 that's made it so good is is not only have their existing characters gotten better in movies, but... The, the amount of diversity that we've had in the characters, I think, has has enabled that superhero fatigue to, to be held off. Yeah. Well, it's also the fact they've managed to shake up the, the formula. And they've had... Each of the films have been... They still feel like MCU films. They still got the basic setup. You still got the basic arc in there. But they have tangible genre feels to them that they're tying into it. Like, this film feels like a frat house film. With, geez, uh, with Disney kids, <laughs> yeah, with a superhero shenanigans going on, Homecoming felt like freaks and geeks with Spider-Man in it, essentially. Yeah, um, you back to Black Panther where it does more of the uh, probably a term for that one. You can carry that one. <laughs> um, what does Black Panther go for? I don't know. Yeah. It, it's it's different because of the I guess the nature of the character and that he doesn't really have any superpowers, so. That yeah. whole technology thing got well, us so interested. Because it was the of... king. Well, it's also the king returning home story. So you have yes. that vitality to that sort of fancy vitality to it. Where if you go to say, you know, Captain, uh, say Winter Soldier, where it's you know the seventies espionage film, you know, Civil Wars, the big crossover film. Uh, you go back across to say the Guardians, where you've got essentially three or two soap opera film, uh, space opera films. Yeah, and then we've got Thor Ragnarok, which kind of throws it completely out the window like it was so meta in the way it looked at itself that it was a, it was such a breath breath of fresh air yeah and then obviously you got captain marvel which takes that sort of 90s feel and grunge to it mixes in with the space opera yeah work. so yeah so different so different and it's, and so, and it's a body cop film essentially yeah and so, so i think if if they're going to continue to to keep this kind of superhero fatigue on the back burner they're going to have to like this next phase four has to be so different and so diverse, and everyone's on such high alert for what the next saga is going to be. You know, we've just finished the Infinity Saga, so who's going to be the next big villain that we're going to lead towards? And 
I yeah. don't know how they're going to manage that now. I'm kind of hoping they just sort of go quiet, go one-shots, have singular stories, don't have the big overarching threat, have something self-contained that just, you know, get in, get out pocket stories yeah. and do that for a while until everyone sort of either gets over it or they gear back up again for it. And I think I think that run from Iron Man to Endgame is substantial enough that they could just go quiet for five, ten years and no one would even notice. That's it, yeah. I mean, I, I'd really like for them to do something like bring back an existing villain. Like I'd love to see an Ultron come back bigger and better. I'd like yeah. to see, like I like this whole idea of um, time travel with Kang the Conqueror. I think that could be an easy way to, to slowly, uh, in the back, back of films, put little nods to a big villain that we won't see coming because he doesn't have to collect anything. Yeah. But I think that's the problem with the media landscape now is that everyone's going to be doing thing pieces and who is that character at the end of thing of, you know, such and such film on YouTube. Oh, totally. I or, mean... Oh, well, yeah, the ending explained. So. Yeah, you see it in Star Wars so much. Yeah, well, Snoke stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it never ends, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we haven't revealed what the end credits are, but no doubt there's going to be tons of fan theories and frame-by-frame um, -frame takes of what, this, what these end credits could mean for the... Um, spider-man's universe and then face I'm, curi I'm curious about that character's characterization how they play him if they yeah. play him similar to how it was used previously or because it's it's a massive wild card oh, we're getting close to the spoiler territory yeah so. I, I don't want to spoil it but i'm i'm amazed they went there yeah <laughs> well we've, we've spoiled the film let's not spoil the the um end credits so we, we give our fans some somewhere to to go just in case they listen a point of reference for anyone actually listening um take skyfall for example yep. so the end of skyfall when bonds and amber at the bonds old house skyfall the caretaker's there and he comes out of the shadows and bond says to him you're still here and he's like i never left you could <laughs> tell that should have been sean connery oh yeah that yep. role was everything felt like it should have been sean connery walking out of the shadows at that moment mm. and they didn't do it I think the only thing that lets it down is that in this situation, they've done it. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Well, look, that was cryptic enough that our, yeah. our listeners are nowhere near. I'm still thinking about what you thought. And I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing <clears throat> they went there and it's amazing they managed to secure the actor for it. So, Okay. So final final question to, to, to kind of end out our, our guest chat here. Yep. You're a fan of Spider-Man in the comics, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. Which which Spider-Man in the films do you think is closest to the comic books? Tobey Maguire's. Yeah. Apart from the it's the humor is probably missing. Like he throws a bunch of one-liners around, but they're few and far between. Yeah. Other than that, he's a perfect Peter Parker. And when he's in the action as Spider-Man, he's perfect. Well, actually, I'll, I'll say two things. Tony Maguire is a perfect Peter Parker. Andrew Garfield is a perfect Spider-Man. <laughs> okay. He's, he's Spider-Man's witty, throwing one-liners out, and the opening to Amazing Spider-Man 2, that first, uh, not the scene with his parents, but the scene straight afterwards where he's collecting, the, where he's battling the rhino through the streets, essentially. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That is, is Spider-Man. You're talking about the part where he gets the megaphone? He goes, Could anybody put your mechanized rhino hands in the air? That one? That's at the, that's at the end. But oh, the first, okay. the first ten minutes where he's chasing the rhinos, you, man, was trying oh, yep, to yep. up the graduation ceremony. Yeah. So he's running late to the ceremony, classic Peter. He's too busy being Spider-Man to get there in time, classic Peter. Mm -hmm. He's catching things. He's bouncing around the place. He's being doing the acrobatics, and he's throwing one-liners out and you know tapping on the glass, asking him to pull over, and making jokes about it the entire time. That ten-minute run is pretty much prime Spider-Man on film, and I don't think. Anyone, any of the films have probably gotten close to that, which is probably a bold thing to say. Because oh, no. the rest, the rest of the two films is shit around that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm agreeing with you totally on that. I, I yeah. think Tobey Maguire was the perfect kind of geeky but smart Peter Parker, and I think yep. the, the one thing that was missing from Tobey Maguire's one is the web shooters, because I think that that puts a lot of cred in Peter Parker's corner that he created this device that he's able it's... to swing. Yeah, but I can understand why they took it out because it takes it's a dramatic element that it's too much of a jump to explain yes. in a film. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's probably why the amazing ones, I think the amazing ones included them 
but then you're talking about a teenager who's building his own web shooters. So I think the way that they did in Homecoming was, and uh, if uh, Civil War was probably a good idea, where it's Tony's tech. I I disagree. I liked I liked the Amazing Spider-Man Spider just like you said, but I liked how he developed the web shooters because in number one they were really crude. They look like just wrist watches on a bit of a Velcro wristband. And then yeah. by the time we got to number two, he'd refined the design. And then even throughout the film, he refined the webbing to suit the um, to suit the villain. And it was yeah. all very organic. Like, it was all very believable that he could do this. It wasn't a, a stretch. I just, I just realized Peter designed his web shooters in Civil War first, didn't he? And then he didn't Tony, design... Uh, didn't Tony adjust them or fix them? Uh, yeah, we never really got to see what they looked like. We, we got to see the web... Because he's you no know, when the when Tony goes to his house uh, goes to Aunt May's house, when they first introduce him, isn't he webbing the door shut? Uh, yes. And then he questions it, and then Tony makes a whip uh, a crack about it. Yes, you're you're a hundred percent right. I can't even yeah. think what they look like though. Yeah, but they're they're definitely there. So he obviously he did create them beforehand. So they've touched on that intelligence, which they do they do throw out there as just one liners when he works out the quantum realm stuff. Yeah. So, okay, I'm gonna to have to look into that. I, you're definitely right, but I have no idea what the web shooters actually look like. I, I, yeah, I can't picture them. I remember the suit being just you know the sweatshirt with the goggles. Yeah, so. yeah, and we see that in this film again. So, yeah, yeah, okay. So that's that's. I think we agree on the the Spider-Man. Sadly, Tom Holland just he's not there yet. But maybe with the third one, we'll get more depth and and well, more think, return to the character. I think he's probably a perfect Spider-Man from the MCU. And it's probably the and probably the reason why we're getting such a slight variation is because of the contract and the agreements. Yes. And then Sony's probably got the option afterwards to do something fresh and new again that calls more on the original law. So they're probably skirting a lot of the stuff so they don't overwash it too much. Yeah. Yeah. So. And they probably want it to match up with all the other animations that have done really well as well to make it more light and. and yeah. I, yeah. I guess for me, I'm just disappointed because I I was kind of hoping Spider-Man would step up and be kind of the figurehead of the Marvel universe once Tony was gone. But with the Sony deal, it probably can't happen. I don't don't think I want it to happen to be honest. Mm. I don't think it's probably there as a character. I mean, traditionally, yeah, he's the character's always been in the expanded world. Like even his uh, second appearance. Yep. He was he tried to join the Fantastic Four. So. That's true. Yeah. Well, that would be a good way to have it. We're having Fantastic Four soon, so it would be great to see if Spider-Man continued. But I don't know how many movies Tom Holland's got in him. He's in his mid-twenties already, so they'd have to upgrade him to college, certainly, before then. Well, if you look at the original comics, I think he's only in high school for the first 20, 30, before he's in college. Yeah, yeah, it um, moves on fast. Probably even that. It's probably even 10 issues, something like that, because I'm pretty sure most of Takedo's run was in college. Mm. It's because he's calling on the social stuff of the year, so... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Alright, awesome man. Well, thank you for uh, chatting all things Spider-Man with us. Yeah, happy to. Giving us your uh, point of view. And definitely, those listeners out there, check out Hayden's stuff. You type in Hayden Fryer, that's F-R-Y-E-R, and check out all his comics that he has created because they are really good good stuff. And it's a talented guy here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was a picture of half, thanks. (laughs) All of our listeners, check out Spider-Man if you haven't already and give us your take on the end credits scene that we haven't spoken about. Web shooters, without these amazing devices, Spider-Man would not be the superhero he is today. These devices were created in the comic Amazing Fantasy number 15 by Stanley and Steve Ditko all the way back when developing Spider-Man and the wrist-mounted web shooters. In the comics, Peter developed the web shooters shortly after getting his powers. He studied spiders, webs, and could be known as the world's leading expert in spiders. Now, web shooters in the comic have a swip, swip sound. Now, web shooters haven't always sounded this way. First, it was a whiz, then slowly developed over the years to a thwing, a thwap, a thwop, a whip, a whap, a zap, before finally landing on a thwip. Spider-Man's web shooters are a fundamental tool for the web slinger today. But could these real devices be created in the real world? 
All you have to do is search on YouTube to find the answer is yes. Based in Singapore, a company called Hero Technicians have been developing real props based off the Marvel films. They've developed a real working prototype of the web shooters, a real prototype of Doctor Strange's sling ring, and have been sharing that with social media via YouTube. Today we have one of the members from Hero Technicians, HT, with us to talk about his web shooter designs. Hi HT, welcome to, to Movie Relics. Tell us about the Doctor Strange sling ring that you created. What made you decide to, to do it in that way? Like with that um, amount of danger, I guess. <laughs> Just because I could. Uh, I, thought yep. it looked, I thought it looked pretty sick. So <laughs> I thought, you know, why not throw on as much clothing as possible and try it out. Uh, at one of the takes, I uh, the sparks, they fell onto my jacket. And like, obviously it didn't make it onto the YouTube video, but you could see me, I was like swearing like a sailor and trying to throw my jacket off. It was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. You can see from the YouTube video, you pretty well protected up. You had some um, industrial yeah. strength gloves on and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're That's pretty incredible. needed because uh, yeah, the scraps of steel from that project can reach, I think if I'm not wrong over like uh, 800 degrees. So wow. it's pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty hot. That's really cool. I, I'm so like when when I searched up on YouTube, you know, about web shooters and trying to find that information, mm. your website at uh, your YouTube was one of the first ones that came up. And yeah, oh, that's awesome. It looks so cool. The the design that you had created and I, I just thank had you. to reach out. Yeah, thank you. It was uh, it's actually based off of the Amazing Spider-Man 2012 Andrew Garfield movie. Oh, yeah. The yeah, the first one. So that's basically where most of the design inspiration came from. And so when you look at the actual the, the design of your web shooters, the, the part that you're detaching at the back, is that mm -hmm. batteries? Is that power? Uh, for the multifunctional web shooter, the cartridge at the back, it's, it houses the webs, basically. Okay. So whether that's like the normal, like thick webs or the retractable webs, the cartridges either house the webs or the watch. Wow. And I wanted to ask, okay, you, you told me it was the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. When, when was mm. it that you actually, like it, it, you had this idea in your head that you could actually make these for real? Uh, it was sometime in the summer of 2017, I think. Yeah. Um, I had just, I'd heard there's a new Spider-Man coming out. The Tom Holland uh, version was just announced, and there's a lot of Spider-Man hype going around. So, um, and I've always been a huge fan of Spider-Man. So I searched up like uh, Spider-Man web shooters and stuff yeah. like that, and I tried to find the versions on YouTube. But uh, what I saw were like a lot of people, like their their ideas were pretty good, and the mechanisms were like almost there to make it seem like realistic, but no one had really made one that looked kind of put together. And I thought, um, you know, I just got a new, I just like started getting into 3D printing. So I thought, you know, why not give it a shot? Right. And yeah, six months later, I that's what I came up with. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and it only took you that long. <laughs> six months to me was a long time. Yep. Yeah. It took, me, it took me around that long. Did you have any, any big hurdles that you had to, to solve whilst, while making it? Uh, the main big hurdles were honestly just the engineering of it. Like there were, there were 101 different problems that cropped up, uh, when I was trying to make the web shooter, especially since it was so small, like I had to cram everything into a pretty compact space, mm -hmm. which didn't leave me much room to operate in terms of components or, um, margins of error. And so the the thing I noticed the most about your web shooters when you when you that compare it to to other ones, I can't work out how you actually activate it. So like most web shooters would have like a oh, okay. a touchpad in the palm, but yours seems to work off like a, a signal yeah. or an infrared or how does that work? <laughs> well, I made it so that that's what it looks like, but uh, essentially there's a small piece of fishing line that's attached to the internal mechanism of the web shooter that's wrapped around uh, one of the fingers of your hand. So this fishing line is attached to a block on a spring yeah. inside the web shooter, which is what locks the projectile 
in place. So simply when the string, when the fishing line is pulled, the block moves out of the way and the projectile flies forward. Oh, wow. That's how it's released. <laughs> That's so clever. I thought it was something so, yeah, much, so much more like some sort of laser <laughs> and you were interfering the path or yeah, something. Yeah, and... it, would have been, it would have been sick to have something like that, but there just wasn't enough space. So Yeah, it's like, almost right. like a, a magician's trick, a bit of misdirection. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And so what what sorts of things have you done with the web shooters? Like I joked around with you about have you actually tried to web someone with it? <laughs> Yeah, uh, when, well, I was screwing around with my friends, and of course, like, we, we try and shoot each other with it, which is not advised, but um, it's not it's not particularly painful. It's like a Nerf, if you ever felt like oh, a yeah. Nerf dart before, it's about that level of pain. Okay. Um, before, we revamped the web shooter so that it's a manual connection between the webbing and the projectile. So now we can actually pull things to us with some kind of weight, so... Like there are, with a new web shooter, we can, let's say, what's the heaviest thing? Like we could probably pull like a chair towards us if it was made out wow. of uh, some kind of metal or alum or steel. That's uh, pretty impressive. Something like, like that, yeah. There's some good good tension strength in that in that line that you've got coming Yeah, out. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And no, nowhere near enough to support a person's weight yet, but <laughs> no, no, I did see on the yeah. comments a few people were asking whether you were trying to get to that point. Yeah. I'm like, Every day I wake up to new comments like that. I'm like, uh, it's not really how it works. Yeah, and there's a lot of risk even testing that. Yeah, like eventually that's, that is where we want to get to. And I have started work on a project like that, but it's very, very, very risky. Okay. So we're, we're trying to make sure we do everything right. Yeah. I, I would imagine you'd use similar technology like um, if you were going to create Batman's grappling hook. Like you'd need that sort of mm. strength. Yeah, actually, a couple other YouTubers have made. I think either the Hacksmith or sufficiently advanced. They've made Batman's grappling hook already, so mm -hmm. they've they've got something like that on their under their belts. Oh, nice. Um, okay. So, so we we know we know something is possible, but no one's really made it yet. Yeah, and then actually getting it so that you can do that um, traditional Spider-Man swing would be difficult as well. Yeah, because, you know, yeah. I've seen many videos where they actually dissect the swing and see if it's physically active <laughs> like whether the physics work and yeah you know, yeah i'm not sure whether it really fits together so yeah. so you've done the the web shooters you've done the sling ring i saw you did a pokemon ball as well what's what's oh, yeah, next for for hero technicians to create what's next um well we have one different version of the web shooter that's coming up the ps4 version Oh yeah. Uh, personally, the PS4 Spider-Man was honestly one of my favorite Spider-Mans to date. So we're trying to make the web shooter from that one. Um, we're also making. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the dragon from How to Train Your Dragon, the Night yeah. Fury. Yeah. Uh, we're basically yeah we're basically making a small uh, motorized version of that that can actually fly. So Ooh, okay. that one's uh, in the works also. And so um, with the design of that sort yeah. of thing, do you? Do you try and make the wings flap, or is it more of like a drone type of thing? Oh yeah, we're we're gonna make the wings flap in wow. sort of like an ornithopter yeah. uh, kind of design. Because a drone, a drone kind of would be easy. Like we can just make a frame, like three D printer frame, and stick it on any commercial drone and it'd fly. But the flapping would be like you know that's actually pretty pretty challenging, and no one's ever really done it in this kind of form before yeah that's incredible because i mean it would take some severely like uh, like complicated engineering to get it working and then even to turn it would it, it would just yeah, be so yeah. tough to work out it is <laughs> it is a pretty hard challenge nice well you guys must be you know very accomplished at this sort of thing that, that that's a challenge you feel like you can handle yeah well uh we have we have a couple very, very experienced engineers that um, that like to lend their help to us, which is which I'm very grateful for. Because me personally, um, I'm more of a self-taught engineer, which yep. is I just learned stuff through Google and stuff like that. Not really anything formal or any formal education. But uh, I have friends that are helping out right now, which uh, are very are engineering geniuses. So I'm very wow. thankful for them. Oh, that's fantastic. I have a good team built around you. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, what do you think of the the new Spider Man, the Tom Holland version of Spider Man? Ooh, the the well, firstly, 
actually I didn't <laughs> I didn't actually like it. Um far at least when they came out with Homecoming, I thought the version of Spider-Man was okay. But regarding the suit and the web shooters, I I, I kind of hated it actually. It was too it was too stark tech for me. The the entire suit thing, the AI, the yeah. the drone, the parachute, all the different features. And the web shooters were too they looked too sleek and stuff for me for more like a Peter Parker vibe. Mm. So I actually didn't, I actually am not too much of a fan of um the new suit or the new web shooters. And with Far From Home coming out, uh <laughs> it's only cemented that that belief a bit more. Like I don't know if you you've checked out the Far From Home web shooters yet, but yeah. they're literally just a they're just a rectangle with a triangle on top. That's that's really that's literally it. And so, you would think from far to home, like Tony Stark isn't there now, so we might actually see Tom Holland create his own, and it'll get back yeah, to that yeah. that kind of uh, more home built one that it should be. Yeah. But yeah. no. But yeah, I heard. I mean, I heard he makes his own suit, but I think the web shooters are still. They look. Uh, I'm sorry, but they just look terrible. Yeah. So so you have to stick with the Andrew Garfield ones because that's the only ones we really have in, yeah. in the film incantations <laughs> yeah yeah my personal preference is the garfield ones thank you ht for talking to us about web shooters today we can't wait to see what your next project is going to be thank you as well my publisher came to me and he said stan i want you to come up with another superhero so I said, okay, and I went home, and I thought, what can I come up with now? And I saw a fly crawling on the wall. And I said, hey, if I could get a superhero that could stick to walls and crawl on them, man, that would be cool. I thought that was good, now I needed a name. So I said, well, let's see, Fly Man, Mosquito Man. I got down to Spider-Man. Spider-Man, it just sounded dramatic. So, okay, I had my hero, I had his power, his name. I'm going to give him personal problems. Then I thought I'd make him a teenager, because there were no teenage superheroes that I knew of at the time. So armed with all that wonderful material, those great ideas, I ran into my publisher's office and I told him. This was my reaction, the reaction he gave me. Stan, that is the worst idea I have ever heard. First of all, people hate spiders, so you can't call a hero Spider-Man. You want him to be a teenager? Teenagers can only be sidekicks. And you want him to have personal problems? Stan, don't you know what a superhero is? They don't have personal problems. Well, I left the office disappointed, but obviously a much wiser man. And I couldn't get Spider-Man out of my system. So we were about to kill the magazine. I think it was called Amazing Fantasy. Just to get it out of my system, I put Spider-Man in Amazing Fantasy, featured him on the cover, forgot about it. A month later, all the sales figures came in. My publisher came racing into my office. Stan, Stan, you remember that character we both loved so much, Spider-Man? Let's do him as a series. Throughout Spider-Man's story, he has to deal with many tragedies. But it's not these tragedies that define him. It's his resilience. Let's take a look at it frame by frame. Stories provide us with options for how to deal with the adversity we face. They provide a way of experiencing how things could be resolved and show us that we are not alone in how we feel or experience events. Resilience is the process of adapting to adversity, the ability to bounce back after difficult experiences throughout life. It helps children manage stress and feelings of anxiety and uncertainty. Think of it as a balancing scale with protective or positive experiences and coping skills on one side and adversity or negative experiences on the other. Resilience is evident 
when the scale tips to the positive experiences, even when there is a heavy load of adversity. Look at Spider-Man, one of the first superheroes to be pushed to the limit, contemplating failure and never giving up. He lives life by a mantra passed down to him by his deceased Uncle Ben. With great power comes great responsibility. With Spider-Man, it begins with the man under the mask. Wisecracking but sincere, imperiled but powerful, extraordinary but relatable. Spider-Man was the superhero that broke the mould. While they likely didn't know it at the time, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko fundamentally changed the nature of the genre forever when they created the character Spider-Man. Making a superhero whose personal life wasn't just used as a transitional point to action scenes, but as a core element of his identity. This is the common theme through all of Spider-Man's different incantations, versions and stories. Resilience. The ability to overcome adversity, to endure and bounce back from life's difficult experiences. Believe me, Spider-Man has had the lion's share when it comes to difficult experiences, especially if you look at the stories written in the comics. Spider-Man's parents died at a young age, leaving Peter to be raised by his aunt and uncle. In one comic book story, Spider-Man's villain Chameleon creates androids of his parents to mess with him. Imagine how that would mess with someone's ability to look on the bright side of life and your basic concept of trust. This was shaken again when Aunt May died of natural causes. Problem there was, Peter discovered that Norman Osborn had kidnapped Aunt May and placed an actress in her place. Peter later discovers this after a plot to kidnap his unborn child. To complete this massive tragedy of Peter's family unit, Uncle Ben was killed by a criminal that Peter refused to stop out of anger and frustration. And the last tragedy for Spider-Man and Peter Parker was the death of Gwen Stacy when she was thrown off a bridge and killed inadvertently by Spider-Man's efforts to save her. Throughout all this tragedy, we see the resilience of a strong hero who picks himself back up, learns from his mistakes, and moves forward in life with a positive mindset. As a parent, resilience is something I teach to my son. Much like Peter's resilience, it comes from the relationships we build and the adversities we face. Knowing that we are never alone and we can lean on people can be the driving force for building resilience. And that's this week's Frame by Frame. That is it for us for another week of Movie Relics. Thank you so much for listening to our first review episode. I hope you get to go and see Spider-Man and give us your take of what you thought of the film. Next week is going to be our final episode in the series of this Movie Relics. And after that, we'll take a couple of weeks break. And then we will be back with an even better Season 2 with some really great episodes planned and some really different different things planned. I won't give too much away. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you at the cinema. <laughs>